Good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, you can meet me in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 32. Uh, We're going to pick up right where we left off a couple of weeks ago in this story. Um, So it seems odd that we're right in the middle of a paragraph here, but uh, that's where we're going to start, verse 32. We're going to read to the end of verse 40. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here uh, at FAC. It is always a pleasure to be with you. And uh, if you are new here or newer to the FAC body, the family, um, it would help us tremendously if you would make yourself known to us so that we can help you the best that we can get connected. Uh, I would encourage you after service to stop by our connection point uh, or feel free to introduce yourself to me afterwards uh, right up front here. I would love the chance to meet you. Um, We've been in Acts for quite some time, and once again, we'll continue in verse 32. I do want to remind everyone, uh, as Pastor Scott did earlier, today is the last day uh, to purchase one of those COVID care packages for our uh, workers on COVID floors here in hospitals in Erie. Uh, We are also asking that if you have any note cards that you're still working on, that those be turned in uh, sometime today before you leave. Uh, We're very excited about that. Those will be packed uh, by several student volunteers, actually, after service. And then our intention is once we've got them all packed up in an order uh, next Sunday, just a heads up, we're going to bring them up front. We're going to celebrate what we've done uh, and what the, really what God has done through us as a body. And we're going to pray over these packages because we want to remember that our intent here is not just to bless COVID workers. We are, we do want to bless COVID workers, uh, but our intentions go further in that as we give them uh, Bibles and as we give them our contact information, our hope is that somehow, some way the Holy Spirit would work work in the hearts and the minds of these workers, uh, and that uh, e- even one would come to know Christ through our efforts here. And so we're going to pray, and we've got to remember this is a spiritual uh, act that we're, we're, we're conducting here, a spiritual project, really. Um, and so we look forward to that next Sunday as we pray for those before we deliver them uh, the following week. So uh, once again, let's go ahead and turn to God's word. Acts chapter 16 will be in verses 32 through 40. I'll read it and then we'll pray and we'll begin. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises within it, the direction within it, the light within it. And in our time today, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would we learn more of who you are and would we know your very heart? Give us the grace to know, the grace to understand, and even the grace to retain your word this morning. 
In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. So if you've ever sat in a middle school English class or an elementary school English class, there's a good chance that you have learned the five stages of storytelling, the, the dramatic structure of stories. The, the, the first stage they've called exposition. It, uh, it, exposition, it sets the scene. It introduces us to the characters. It, it kind of shows us where everything is as it stands in the story. And then there's the second stage, which is called the rising action. This is the stage where uh, characters, there's actually tension built up among characters within the setting. And then there's the third stage at the peak of the arc of, uh, of the story. If you remember in your English class, the story does one of these with, with an arc. And at the very top is stage three, and it's the climax. The climax is the, the turning point in the story, and it's usually the most exciting part. It's thrilling, right? The last time we were in Acts 16, a couple of weeks ago, we touched base on the climax of the story that we've been working through. Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, uh, but despite their circumstances, you didn't hear moaning, you didn't hear groaning, you didn't hear complaining. No, in the middle of the night, they were actually praying and they were singing. And what we saw was that their worship of God through their, their praising of him through song and prayer sets the scene for their witness. They went from worship to witness because a giant earthquake hit and they could have gotten free. This was their opportunity to be let loose, but they didn't. Instead, they seized an opportunity at hand. They had a chance to escape, but instead they told the jailer about Jesus and this message of salvation. That was the, the climax, right? It's, it's one of the most exciting parts of the story in all of Acts. Um, now, what we read just a moment ago, though, is, is the falling action of the story at stage four of the dramatic structure. The, the purpose of falling action is to tie up any loose ends, there's really nothing particularly exciting about the falling action other than they were just kind of dealing with the ramifications of the climax and we're getting the story to, to the end. Um, these verses in particular that we read put a nice neat bow on their time in Philippi before they head out to another destination. Now, because the passage that we read is the falling action of the story, it actually makes it particularly hard to preach from. This is why the, if you were to Google these specific verses and look for a sermon, you would largely come up empty handed because not many preachers spend time on these specific verses. They like to preach about the jailer and the earthquake and, and this dramatic scene because that's fun. That's exciting. That's one of the most popular stories, not just in Acts, but in all of, of the Bible. But then they kind of skirt the falling action of the story. They just read it and, and move on, right? And without even touching on it. To be honest, I was going to do the same thing. We were going to be in Acts 17 this morning, but as I read through the falling action, I determined that there's just more that we need to chew on. There's a little, there's a little bit more there that, that we need to consume here, right? And our approach to scripture, both individually on our own times and corporately when we come together as a body of believers, we should always 
chew on scripture as much as we possibly can. Right? We always approach scripture with the, with the question, is there more? Is there more to chew on? Have I left anything behind? Oftentimes, pastors will actually compare sermon preparation with meal preparation. That's what I'm doing in the week prior to Sundays before coming and opening up God's word with you. I am preparing a meal, if you will, for us as a church body to eat and to consume and feel fulfilled and satisfied and to grow. And and maybe it doesn't taste the best all the time, but at least it's healthy for us, right? We're participating in a meal together when we preach from God's word. Even Hebrews 5, right, talks about this. The author of Hebrews um, compares the process of spiritual maturation to, to, to studying God's word to food. And the writer of Hebrews says, hey, don't just stay drinking milk like you're an infant. You shouldn't be an infant anymore. You should be eating solid food. Move on to the good stuff. Chew on the good stuff. And so we must be careful in our time of study, once again, both individually and corporately, to just kind of skirt by passages like this one, just because they're not as thrilling as the climax. They're not as popular. This is somewhat of a silly illustration. I might get some eye rolls here, um, but you're just going to have to indulge me, okay? When I was a youth pastor... I would regularly take students out to eat wings at a place like Buffalo Wild Wings. And before the meal started, I would put a plate right in the middle of the table and I would tell the students that this was the graveyard. And I said, when you're done with your chicken wing, throw the bones in the graveyard. And over time, we would amass this giant pile of chicken bones and it was glorious and it would represent the con- our conquest uh, of young men as we uh, downed hundreds of wings, right? But I have to tell you, it would drive me nuts when I'd get a middle school kid that would throw a bone on the graveyard that still had more meat on it. And I would pick up the bones And I look him straight in the eye and I'd say, there's still more meat on this bone. How dare you finish it? And then, and then, and then they would finish it. Right. In the same way, when we approach scripture too many times, we leave meat behind. We just want to move on to the next thing. We leave meat on the bones. There's more to chew on, which is why we're going to focus some time on the falling action of this story. Now, just a heads up, one of the problems that we encounter is that this is a rather sporadic passage, right? There's a sporadic nature to it. Typically, I like to stick to just one main idea from this passage. What is this passage trying to communicate? Uh, But this one has a few random ones that come through. And uh, as the week went by, I was just jotting down notes, and you're just going to have to put up with my meandering thoughts this morning, right? As we uh, pick off as much meat as we can from these verses, I'll try and be fluent, but um, who knows? I rarely am. So um, let's let's take a look at it, starting in verse, uh, we'll start in verse 32 and 33. And once again, this comes right off the tale of Paul and Silas sharing the gospel, the message of Jesus with this jailer. And I want to draw attention, your attention, to Paul's both urgency and intentionality. His urgency and his intentionality. But the the jailer asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then in verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. 
and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. It was within the hour in the middle of the night that they share the gospel, not just with the jailer, but with his whole family. There is an urgency. Paul was ready and urgent to to share the word of the Lord. Matthew Henry, who is an early 18th century minister and famous for his readily available commentaries, wrote this. He says that believers should have the word of the Lord so ready to them, so richly dwelling in them as to be able to give instructions offhand to any that desire to hear and receive them for their direction in the way of salvation. What Henry means is that just as Paul spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer in his household at that very given hour, we as believers should be ready to speak at any given moment, even if it's the middle of the night. Think about it. How easy would it have been for Paul, having experienced the day that he just experienced, beaten, uncondemned, thrown, publicly humiliated, right? And all of a sudden this earthquake hits. There's, there's mass hysteria going on, if you will. How easy would it have been for Paul to say, you know, I'm just really tired. I'm just going to call it quits. I'm just going to call it a night, right? I'm going to go to sleep. No, no, he doesn't do that, though. He takes the opportunity and he pressed into the jailer at that moment. Paul had the opportunity in that moment, and it might have been his only chance. And so he took advantage of it and he seized the moment at hand. He was urgent, but he was also intentional. He was intentional in speaking the word of the Lord. Notice that Paul doesn't invite him to go to church. He doesn't invite him to join a gathering of believers, which we know from later on in the chapter at the very end in the conclusion that there are there is a body of believers there that have now been established that Paul visits with. He, he doesn't invite the jailer to go meet with a gathering of believers. Just, just come and see and then we'll tell you, right, the good news. He doesn't even offer to pray for him at this moment. No, he shares the message of Jesus. He speaks the word of the Lord. He tells them that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And at that very hour, he goes to his family and he tells them the same thing. So don't get me wrong. I don't want you to hear the wrong message. Serving your neighbor is good. Praying for your neighbor is good. Inviting them to church is good. But none of that is actually evangelism. Evangelism by Definition, if you were to track the origins of the word, it literally means to bring good news, to be a messenger of good news, to be a preacher of the gospel. We are all, if you are a believer in this room, if you believe that Jesus has died to save you, you are an evangelist in your own right. And we're actually commanded to do the work of an evangelist. And the best place to do the work of an evangelist, as Paul demonstrates, is to do it right where God has placed you. We we must be intentional in the areas of our life where we are around unbelievers. We must leverage the opportunities that we have 
where we are exposed to unbelievers, non-believers. God placed Paul and Silas right in the middle of a prison with a jailer who has no experience with God whatsoever. And this jailer would have never attended a church gathering. And so Paul meets him right where he is. Some of the most effective evangelism comes when you take the time to invest in relationships and then are intentional to speak Jesus to those who you regularly encounter. And so what opportunities do you have in your day-to-day life? Who is the coworker or the student or the family member or even the barista that you come across every single day? As a pastor, I have to admit that this is somewhat difficult because the entire church staff is believers. I don't, I don't work with non-believers. My whole life is sh- surrounded by believers. And so I make up for it. How? By being intentional. I intentionally go get my hair cut from the same person every single month. I intentionally go do sermon prep on Fridays at the same restaurant with the same waiter or waitress. I intentionally go to Chipotle like 500 times a week. (laughs) All in hopes that at some opportunity, I will be able to start a gospel conversation somewhere, and I have. When it comes to evangelism, I think too often our minds are focused about, you know, the gospel being preached to the masses at these huge evangelistic events or at church. That if I just, if I just invite somebody to church, I'll let the pastor do the hard work because that's, that's their job. Um, but, but I don't want us to underestimate the power of that one person that God has strategically placed in your life so that you can point them to Jesus. Hear me out when I say that your friends and your family, they don't really care about me and what I have to say. I have no relationship with them. You will be far more effective because you have a relationship than I ever will from behind a pulpit. And so understand that God has strategically placed people in your life for a purpose. You see what happens during the week within the body of FAC, away from this building, is just as important as what happens here on Sunday mornings. Now, let me be clear. When I talk about the FAC body, I am talking about those of you who call FAC home, right? who, who say, this is my church. I, I am in on this, this church's mission. I am, I am here. Uh, this is my church home. This is my church But what's important to note is, is the doctrine of the local church. This is so important. You are the church, not this building, right? And you don't cease to be the church when, when you leave this building. I've heard, I've heard it said that when we welcome people at the beginning of the service, it, we, we ought not to say welcome to First Alliance Church as if it's the building. No, what we should say is welcome First Alliance Church. 
We are greeting you as the church, as a body. You are the local church and we are the church gathered right now. And when we leave, we are still the church. We are the church scattered. But even in our separation, even as we are scattered across Erie, we are still the local church. And if we are still the local church uh, scattered, our mission continues throughout the week. Not just the people that are on staff, but you who are a part of this local body. And when you walk out of this building, it's so important to understand, I am sent. I am sent now into the mission field. I am being sent out to do ministry on the turf of the unbeliever. I am going to meet them right where they are because that's what Jesus did for me. He came from heaven to earth. He met us right where we are. And now we are called to go and meet those where they are. And here's why this is such an important concept to understand. Because for the most part, except for the rare exception, the unbeliever just doesn't care about what we do here on Sunday mornings. They just don't. Why would they? Back in December, we went through the first 18 verses of John 1, and one Sunday in particular, we talked about the relationship between Jesus and the world, and we looked at how the world didn't recognize Jesus. And not only did they not recognize Jesus, the world actually rejected Jesus. So what makes us think for a second that people are actively seeking this truth? They aren't. They really aren't. And so we need to go to them. Too often, we just kind of sit back passively and say, well, if they they want it, they'll come to us. And that does happen occasionally, but for the most part, they won't because they don't know what they want. And so our strategy needs to change. I've mentioned in the past that our elders are are reading a book called Gaining by Losing. It's by J.D. Greer. And I'd like to share just a quick excerpt from the book, uh, from the chapter that we're actually going through this uh, upcoming week with the elders. Greer writes that what happens during the week establishes the difference, don't miss this, between a disciple and an attender in the church. And in our post-Christian age, the weekend is becoming less effective for reaching truly unchurched people. Fewer and fewer lost people are moseying their way into our weekend services, thus equipping disciples to reproduce outside of the church during the week is becoming vastly more important than having a great weekend show. As our society becomes more and more post-Christian, training members to go will be far more effective than inviting the community to come. In April of 2019, CNN reported the the results of a uh, survey where people are asked for their religious affiliation And for the first time ever in the administration of this survey, those who marked no affiliation outnumbered all the rest. There there were more people that said, I am not affiliated with any religious, I am non-religious, and it outnumbered those who marked an affiliation. And those with no affiliation, they're being referred to by um, sociologists as the religious nuns. N-O-N-E-S, nuns. There's no affiliation. And they won't come to us. They won't come to us if we have the best, most interesting music. 
They won't come to us uh, even if we had an engaging and interesting pastor. They won't come to us if we had inspirational messages. They're not coming. So we must go to them. And when we do go to them, and we do share the gospel, and when the Holy Spirit does maybe lift the blinders from their eyes and they see the gracious, uh, the glorious grace of Jesus, then they will take up interest in what we do and why we do it. There will actually be a change of relationship between the believer and the unbeliever when the unbeliever becomes a believer. And we see the change in relationship and the power of such change in our passage this morning. Uh, the, the relationship between the jailer and Paul and Silas dramatically changes, right? The jailer goes from being an enemy to a friend. Back in verse 23, if you were to let your eyes wander up the the text a little bit, back in 23, uh, the jailer is commanded to keep them safely. That was his only charge. But then we read in verse 24 that the jailer was the one that put them in the inner maximum security prison. And the jailer was the one who fastened their feet in the stocks. From what we can tell, the jailer goes above and beyond what he was actually ordered to do. The the authorities just said, hey, just keep them safe. And the jailer takes it upon himself to secure them in the most dramatic of fashions. But then the jailer comes to know Christ. And he is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And in verse 33 and 34, we see a much different picture, a much different relationship. He takes Paul and Silas to his house in the middle of the night. There are some other believers that I don't want to take into my house in the middle of the night. But this jailer, without reservation, takes, expresses hospitality, brings them to his house in the middle of the night, and then he washes their wounds, the very wounds that he may have played a part in inflicting. He tenderly cares for them. He gives them food. Paul and Silas now have a place at his family's table. And then the jailer rejoices with his entire household, which is another contrast as as well. The man goes from utter despair to joy. Think about this. He was ready to fall on his own sword. He, he, He was suicidal. He was suicidal. And now he praises God for the newfound life that he has in Christ. This scene portrays a powerful, powerful transformation not just in one man, but in a relationship between the two. And it portrays the bond of believers that believers share in Christ. And when one comes to know Christ, not only is there a change in relationship, but there is also a change in a verdict, if you will, a change of status that's alluded here in the final verses of chapter 16. Moving, moving forward, the next day, these magistrates, who are the ones responsible for Paul and Silas's imprisonment, they attempt to release them privately. There's a good chance that they may have caught wind that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, uh, which would have made the magistrates look very bad. They very well could have lost their job for mishandling the, the situation. And so they just want to kind of cover the whole thing up. 
Right? They want to cover it up. They don't want any problems. They just say, hey, Paul, could you guys just leave silently? Don't make a big, there's no need for excitement here. Just we'll let you go. Uh, you just make your own way. And Paul wasn't having any of it. Paul, Paul says, hey, absolutely not. You've beaten us. You've imprisoned us publicly. You've humiliated us. And now you want to throw us out secretly as to hide your own shame? You just want to sweep this under the rug? No. We weren't even given a trial. But I'm telling you, we're innocent. And so, no, we're not going to leave secretly. No, you come here and you escort us out. You, you take us out. We would think about this. Paul is saying, I would rather extend my time in prison. I would rather spend more time here locked up than allow you to sweep this under the rock. One commentator writes that Paul is making his innocence a matter of record. He wants the record to show that they are innocent. And to publicly escort them out of prison was an act demonstrating his innocence. Just, just as you declared us guilty in front of the masses, you're going to come here and you're going to affirm that we are actually innocent. Let the record show that you accused us and we are innocent. There's some real vindication here, right? As the magistrates uh, come and apologize to them and then, and then take them out. Now, Paul is not in the habit of insisting on his own rights that had been violated. And that's even demonstrated in the fact that this comes up now. Why didn't Paul say something about this in the middle of their beating that they were Roman citizens, right? Why all of a sudden does Paul do this here? Um, the best guess that we have is that Paul actually isn't doing this for his own sake, but for the sake of the other believers in Philippi. Right, If Paul and Silas leave secretly as the magistrates requested, it actually sets a very dangerous precedent for other believers in the city. Paul, Paul is saying, hey, look, we're going to leave the city, but you have to know that you just can't do that. You, you can't treat other believers like that who are innocent as well. That's why Paul does this, and that's what the text means. But this does allude to a broader theme throughout Scripture. This alludes to the concept that those who believe in Jesus, those who are saved by him, actually experience a change in verdict, a change of status. Because before we know and believe Jesus, we are guilty. We are guilty before God because of our sin. We have missed the mark. God, in God's perfection, he cannot be around sin. And if he could be around sin, he would cease to be God because God is, is perfect. It's in his very character to not be able to be around sin. And it's, and it's in, very, in his very character to, to be perfectly just, to give proper punishment for, for the crime. To, to treat it in perfect justness. And he, he is the perfect moral judge. And he has determined that all of those who have sinned have missed the mark of perfection. And it's cosmic treason. And so, yes, you have to be punished for your sin. God's saying it would be unjust of me if I let your sin go unpunished. So yeah, you're on the hook. But in his perfect love 
And in God's gracious mercy, he offers somebody else to take the price for us on our behalf. He offers somebody else to take up that punishment on himself. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ, who willingly submitted to death, even death on a cross. A man who was innocent, yet they accused him and he paid the ultimate price of his life. And now those who are in Christ, who trust in his work on the cross to save them, are what we call justified. There is justification. It's a a legal term, justification, that means to be proclaimed innocent. If you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, when you stand before God, you no longer stand guilty as an object of wrath, but instead you stand innocent and you are an object of his love and his affection. You see, this passage gives us an appetizer, a foretaste of what will happen in heaven. The accusers tried to declare Paul and Silas guilty and made them pay for it. But within 24 hours, they publicly proclaimed them as innocent. This reminded me this week of uh, John Bunyan's famous story, Pilgrim's Progress. The book is an allegorical story that um, represents the Christian walk, if you will, the Christian journey. And in the book, the, the main character is actually named Christian, and he's traveling to the celestial city. And at one point, he has to travel through the Valley of Humiliation, is what it's called, where he comes up against this very ugly creature named Apollyon. Apollyon, in the story, is known as the Accuser who reminds Christian in their conversation of all the ways that Christian failed the great prince of the celestial city, how unfaithful he was, how wretched he was. Polyon looks at Christian and says, who do you think you are? Look at all the things that you've done. How do you really think the prince is going to receive you? You really think? that he could take in somebody like you? You got to be kidding me. Christian responds by saying, all of this is true and much more, which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and I have obtained pardon from my prince. I have obtained pardon. Christian is saying, hey, you're right. I am all of those things, and you know what? You left some stuff out. It's much worse. But... I have a merciful prince who has given me pardon for all of those things. In scripture, we actually find that we have a great accuser in the devil, right? Revelation 12, 10 actually calls him that. And Satan is relentless in his accusations. 
Right? When we come before the Almighty Judge and God, the, the accuser stands before him in an attempt to diminish God's mercy. He accuses us and tries to read off the verdict of guilty resulting in, in death. It's the accuser that's saying, who do you think you are? Look at all the, look at how pitiful you are. Look at all the terrible things that you've done. You really think that God's going to receive you? If God is so perfect, how could he be with someone like you? And we say, you know, you are trying to read off the verdict, the, the guilty verdict of resulting in death, but I know the one who overcame death. And I know the one who has forgiven me. And I know the one who has pardoned me because I have turned to him for pardon. The devil tries to discredit God's mercy by drawing attention to our guilt and our failure and our shame and our sin. Satan wants us to stare at our sinfulness and doubt God and doubt God's characters and doubt God's promises. And God says, no, my love, look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. In God's courthouse, we will be accused, but God will declare us innocent, not on our own merit, but on the merit of Christ and in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just um, I thank you for your promises that are unchanging, Lord, and there are times that we feel tormented in this world. Um, but I am thankful, Father, that you are unchanging. And if you are unchanging, then you are unchanging in your promises and you are unchanging in your dealings with sin, but you are also unchanging in your dealings with us and grace and, and mercy, Father. And we just, we praise you uh, that while I couldn't be good enough, Jesus was on, our, on my behalf. And then he paid the penalty for my sin. And now I am justified and stand innocent before you. I have been received by you and along with others who know Jesus. Father, I know I mentioned in our time together uh, this morning um, that the unbeliever doesn't care necessarily what happens here on Sunday mornings. But if there is somebody here uh, today, Father, um, who doesn't know you, would you call out their name? By the power of your spirit, would you just start working in their hearts and, and reveal yourself to them, Father? And I pray, Father, that when they hear your voice, they would listen and respond. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit, who is far more powerful than anything that we could do. And in your holy name, I pray. Amen.